Welcome to Freeverse, the seasonal podcast from Aideen Lynch and Annie Rutherford discussing queer stories with a particular bias for poets from the last 100 years ish. This podcast is for anyone who wants to know more about queer history and queer identity in history and about poetry as an accessible, passionate art form. And for everyone who wants to be affirmed and inspired by queer makers. And welcome. We are delighted to present this special episode of Free Verse for Stanza Poetry Festival on the late, the great, and the gay, Edwin Morgan. We hope that anyone picking this up from podcast providers is quick to join in on the Stanza festivities at stanzapoetry.org forward slash festival. If you don't know it, Stanza is Scotland's international poetry festival. We run from the 6th to the 14th of March 2021, and a lot of our online events will remain online until the end of the month. So you should hopefully have some time to catch some really wonderful poets reading and performing, including a number of fantastic queer poets. So definitely worth checking out. I didn't know Um, that they were online so, like I thought it was only live events. No, okay, so this, this is the thing that before the festival, because we are recording this in advance, I need to make a little bit clearer on the website. We have a number of Zoom events, but almost all of the events in the event listings marked as free online are pre-recorded and they will be captioned and available and for a few weeks just to allow folk who've maybe got child giving responsibilities or work or whatever. So it was a really great opportunity for the festival to try to be that bit more accessible. And, you know, equally, if there's somebody you absolutely love, you can listen to it again and again. Equally, if you're joining us from the festival and this is your first free verse podcast, we have a backlist. Um, do take a listen and we hope you enjoy. Stanza events are available this year on a pay-what-you-can basis, so please do consider contributing at stanzapoetry.org. There's a wee payment button on the event listing. On to this special free verse episode as part of Stanza's Past and Present series. We're talking about Edwin Morgan. Now, Eddie Morgan, as he's often affectionately called, was born in April 1920 in Glasgow. He was a Scottish poet and translator, widely recognised as one of the foremost Scottish poets of the 20th century. In 1999, Morgan was made the first Glasgow Poet Laureate, and in 2004, he was named as the first Scottish national poet, the Scotsmacker, and he was really hugely defining in this role, and very much associated with it. He died in 2010. Morgan has a prolific catalogue of work, writing anything from the sonnet to the avant-garde concrete poetry. He's translated from Russian, Hungarian, French, Italian, Latin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and Old English. And for Stanza 2021, as part of the Past and Present series, we wanted to spotlight this brilliant and illustrious poet who worked so diligently across so many decades and so many forms, while having to monitor his own visibility, as we'll discuss later. At the top of our show today, we're including a special feature interview with Andres Nicolas Odorica, a queer Latinx writer and educator based in Edinburgh, who's about to release some fascinating work, influenced by Eddie Morgan and supported by the Edwin Morgan Trust. In summer 2020, Andres was awarded a grant through the Edwin Morgan Trust as part of the Second Shelf project to create a poetry film based on three new poems honouring the legacy of Edmund Morgan. And the new film debuted in LGBTQ History Month this year, February 2021. I am so excited about this film. Oh my god. Me too. He also serves as trustee and board member for Artlink Edinburgh, 
and is Programme Manager Community and Events for the Scottish VME Writers Network. His fiction has been featured in Confluence Medway, Silk and Smoke and Gutter, and he has been anthologised in Ceremony from Tapsal Theory Press, and we were always here from 404 Inc. So, without further ado, here's Andras. Welcome to the show. Andres, we're really, really happy for you to join Freeverse. This is a very high quality production, as you have guessed. Um, Sommelier will be with us shortly. Please do sit back and enjoy the strawberries we have provided. We're really happy that you're here, uh, especially because this is a part of our stanza event, past and present, uh, talking about Evan Morgan and his impact still on creatives in Scotland today. I have a question to start off. Would you tell us a little bit about your creative practice and your new project with the Edward Morgan Trust? Yes. Well, thank you for having me, Somalia included. All yeah, yeah, great yeah. podcasts should include a Somalia. <laughs> um, how would I describe my practice? I really like to use this Mexican-American phrase, ni de aquí, ni de allá, which means neither here nor there. I would say that that saying really does impact my writing, whether it's poetry or prose or even nonfiction. I think I have this deep obsession with needing to belong. My family immigrated to the United States from Mexico in the 1960s, but my father was in the U.S. Air Force most of my life. And so I just, I grew up everywhere. So I have this really unsettledness. And yeah, I think as I started to get more serious with writing, it just kind of framed how I wanted to approach story and the kind of writers that I think I ended up really falling in love with and kind of wanting to map myself against someone like Nicole Krauss, who I think writes so brilliantly about Jewish history and the Jewish diaspora. Yeah, so I would say that probably really frames my writing style. And then in terms of my project with this Edward Morgan Trust, I'm one of the Second Life grantees. I really wanted to re-examine his work with, I say a queer lens, but I think I'm sometimes nervous to say that because I think there are so many brilliant scholars who really probably know more about that than I do. But my approach was looking at it through sort of my own intersections as a queer gay man and an immigrant living in Scotland and kind of trying to create a poetic world that made sense for someone like me. So allowing the poems that I wrote during this project to speak to sort of queer identities, but also misplaced identities or immigrant identities, mm -hmm. um, a, a sense of rootlessness. And I think, you know, it's been fascinating to kind of delve into his work and try to find that wider scope. You know, he writes so brilliantly about Scotland. He writes so brilliantly specifically about Glasgow. But I also think, you know, there are so many of his poems that look outward. And I think when you also read his poems against his visual collages, mm -hmm. you know, that he was doing during his time of working in the army, he just had such this fascination with cultures outside of Europe, you know, veering towards Asia and the Middle East and North Africa. And so it really... I think, inspired me to try to play with this idea of Scotland and my identity and whether I'm allowed to call myself Scottish or not. 
I feel like Scott, you know, anyone who comes to Scotland and achieves anything, Scotland is like, yes, we will claim you. <laughs> yeah. So I think you're allowed to call yourself Scottish. Great. <laughs> That's how we work. This is also great news for me as an Irish immigrant in Scotland being like, I mean, it's basically the same, right? And knowing it's really yeah. not basically the same. That, that's a really wonderful answer, though. I think it speaks to so much of what I also read in Morgan's work in terms of that sense of a micro scale within Scotland, but framed through this wider scope around the fact that he wrote in translation and worked so much in translation work. And I think Annie's going to really talk about that later on. And the fact that he was always aware of these other languages and other cultures, but put through this kaleidoscope of his Scottish identity. So I think that maps beautifully onto like exactly what yeah. you're saying. Can you tell us any more about the specific poetry film or like how our listeners might be able to watch it when it launches? Yes. So that will hopefully be out at the end of February, start of March. I am working with an amazing filmmaker who is also a queer Scottish person of color, Tao Ayanis, who did brilliant work for Fringe of Color this past August. And that's how I came across him. I wanted to work with someone who was more well-versed in film than I was. You know, I felt like I could come up with ideas and sort of try to articulate what I wanted to play with, but I was really coming at this project as the poet and, you know, trying to be aware of what my limitations were. You know, we have done one of three of the poems, so it's going to be a three-part short poetry film. Yeah, I would say that my visual approach to it really was inspired by looking through his collage work, which is held in the archives at the Mitchell Library. But there are some examples of it that are available online. I think you can go through the University of Glasgow and on their Flickr page, as well as the Mitchell Library. But I wanted something that felt very true to my own identity. So I tried to have elements of Mexican culture, American culture, but also the poem that ends it is really playing with this idea of belonging within Scotland and kind of speaking through the eyes of my partner who is Scottish and kind of this obsession of being with someone who know so very well where they're from and like to live in your homeland and to just know like when I'm on this soil, I belong. And I've never really felt that. And so visually, I tried to play with these different elements. And then I was able to use some incredible film uh, that was shot in the 1960s by a professor who was working at the University of Edinburgh in, I believe, the veterinary school. And it's incredible. He was just trying to play around with the camera, but he was doing it for scientific projects. So anyway, after he passed, his family made these different bits of film openly available through the University of Edinburgh. So I was able to get in contact. And so we'll be splicing those throughout. But again, yeah, I think with that, I was trying to have some connection temporarily with Morgan. And, you know, at the, you, some of his greatest work was written during the 60s. And so I wanted to try to have this connection to Scotland at that time, but doing it through my own way. And I like the idea that a lot of this film that I found was shot in Edinburgh. You know, I don't live in Glasgow. I don't want to try to be rewrite Morgan's version of Glasgow when that wouldn't be authentic to me. So I'm coming at it from a more Edinburgh approach. <laughs> but I love film poetry. I think I have never tried it 
really before until the first time was this past summer fringe of color but i think as a poet it's really challenged me to think about the different ways you can portray your poetic intent and i'm just deeply fascinated especially knowing someone like morgan was so good at his visual collage he wasn't just doing it to do it. i don't think he you know ever thought he was going to be you know in the whitney or the museum of modern art in scotland but he had such a keen eye for visual playfulness that I think really aligns with some of, yeah, his more playful poetry. And there are some weird zany things, but then I think if you look at it through a very queer lens, you can definitely see this element of desire that's kind of hidden away, how he cuts up especially the male body in really strange ways and then puts things on top of it. So he'll have like a very muscular man, which would have been, you know, from one of those sort of fitness magazines that were very coded because they were basically, you know, like soft core porn. But then we'll do really weird things like find like this very garish mask from further afield and put it on top. I really like that element. Yeah, I hope that when people see the poetry film, especially if they know Morgan's visual work, that they can sort of see where inspiration was born from. That sounds fascinating. It sounds like you, it, I mean, especially you've done this kind of archival work with Edwin Morgan, but I'm curious about when you first read Eddie Morgan and like, what was it about his work in particular that sort of appealed to you? Yeah. So I think like m- many people, the first Morgan work that I read was Strawberries. <laughs> and that was uh, probably three years ago, but it's been really interesting. I think you know, I'm very grateful for everything that's come from being part of the Second Life Project and celebrating the centenary. But people have been asking me this question, and I say, or more often than not, I tell people that I find it really maddening that I didn't come across him until I think I was 28. And I think being a queer poet, a gay man, looking back at the start of my writing career, my sort of obsession and love for poetry and literature, I just wonder how things could have been altered had I known of him earlier. I think I would have felt maybe more of a rootedness that I have been longing for, but I am grateful to now be welcomed by other lovers of Morgan's work. You know, I'm very grateful for the Edwin Morgan Trust doing what they're doing this year for the centenary and really championing different voices to re-examine his work and to celebrate his work in different ways. Because it's amazing to me that there was someone who was working for so many years who was so prolific. And yet I don't know how widely he's discussed in the US. You know, I did an English degree in my undergrad. We never studied him in any of our poetry courses. I'd n- I don't think I've, I remember ever seeing his name on any of the reading lists, which I just find sort of maddening because his body of work is just huge. I don't even, and I mean, I genuinely don't know. I like maybe he's very well known and well loved and well read in England, but I don't even know how well celebrated he is at the moment south of the border. And it is, it's quite strange. It's one of those things when you work in the poetry ecosystem, you kind of like, I'm very aware of Eddie Morgan because he didn't actually die that long ago. And, you know, plenty of people who I work with knew him personally. My favourite story ever is there was a guy who used to come to Stanza and just got really involved in the audience. Like he would heckle, but it would be positive heckling. And so he'd be like, Eddie! Eddie, do the poem about the strawberries. It's like um, you're at a gig and you're like, one more <laughs> turn. <laughs> <laughs> so 
also like it's really it's quite weird being very aware of this love and reverence for him in the same way that you kind of are for Seamus Heaney but without him having a similar standing I mean like how many Seamus Heaney poems did I do at school (laughs) how many Morgan poems did I do none listen Seamus Heaney is brilliant and I feel very protective of him I love Heaney (laughs) I absolutely love Heaney and I could talk about him for a long time but I think it is you know like actually they were of a similar age and they could yes. have been of a similar stature and that does I can say see quite you, a lot. you do have a point there yes it's curious because like you know having done my undergraduate in Ireland we are very self-obsessed and so it's like we don't need to read anybody else we can just read the north like the Belfast poets and like Evan Boland maybe and then that's it <laughs> So it was really only when I moved to Scotland that I started to realize like there was this like huge wealth like of specifically Scottish poetry because I think sometimes Scottish poets get like pulled under the umbrella of British or English poets. That's a really like indicative answer though in terms of like that sense of learning about this poet later on in life after having been, you know, educated and realizing like, oh, there's so much more out there that I wasn't aware of. And this means a lot to me. And I wish I'd known about it before. Because I think that's a similar sense I had with Eddie Morgan when I was reading him for the first time. The sense that like he was writing on both sides of a divide, like both before homosexuality was decriminalized and then after. And writing as somebody who was still in the closet when it was technically legal, but, you know, for personal reasons was still careful about that personal private aspect of himself and then later became much more vocal. So one of one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading through his poems and prepping for this episode is what kind of impact do you think Eddie Morgan really has for queer readers today? Or like, what can we sort of glean from reading his work? To me, I think at the forefront is just the possibility of language and the possibility of, Mm. it's going to sound probably way too grandiose, but like (laughs) all the different ways we can exist. His poetry can be very intimate and very small and very granular. And he's brilliant at really homing in on a moment, you know, whether it's between a lover or between a city, but then, you know, can build these really big worlds and invent language and and write poems about alien speaking and you know some of his more zany or more kind of experimental work I love but I think just knowing that there was someone who was bold enough to just challenge himself in all the different ways he approached poetry and didn't feel the need to prescribe himself to any single form, I think that's exciting because I think in a lot of ways that seems the most authentic kind of representation of queerness, if we're using queerness in a very umbrella way that Mm. encapsulates many different members of the LGBTQIA plus community, then I think hopefully there's a Morgan poem for everyone. And I don't think he was just doing stuff to do it. He ha- he was very intentional, but was just a master of his craft. But to me, some of his poems about love, I just, when you read them, I feel seen in a way, mm. or not seen, but I feel like I exist on the page. And I just think To me, especially like you were saying, of all of the things that he was writing within, you know, historically, legally, when he was allowed to exist openly or not exist, or when he felt he could exist openly or not exist openly, that he still had poems that were speaking to queer love and desire, I think is just brilliantly fascinating. And I think it should inspire 
queer readers of today to know that it is your right to write if you choose in any form your existence and to take up space. And I just think he's someone who so brilliantly did that. And I came to him in my late 20s, but I'm so excited that for however long I'm left on this earth, I have his poems to enjoy and to revisit. And that just really makes me excited, especially going forward with my own writing career, just to know what the possibilities are. That's so true. As I was reading through the selected Eddie Morgan, I kept being struck by how often he loves to personify inanimate objects or like other people or fictional identities. One of my favorites is he, he writes this poem called Eros, where he personifies and like writes from the perspective of the small little cherub at the top of Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> It is quite erotic. Like he, he writes in the first person and there's this line in it where it's like, I am six feet tall. I want to be embraced. I long for you to climb up here beside me, twine your legs about me, clasp my neck, press close to my good looks and kiss me so that everyone can see that none can doubt it. And like, it's just like this silly little thing of like him imagining he's the statue at the top of Piccadilly Circus <laughs> and being like, come up here. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think we're, we keep mentioning is just how much he did write and how prolific he was. And so I think because you have a, a more in-depth understanding of him now, where would you recommend for people who aren't familiar with Eddie Morgan to start reading in this vast range of work? Or is there any, any particular sort of poem or like period you think is like the best place to start? I'm a fan of his love poems. And so mm. for the centenary... I think it might have been Polygon, who put out a collection of Morgan's work in five different sort of, I guess, chapbooks, pamphlet size on different themes. So there's Scotland, there's space, there's love. They all include forwards by different contemporaries of Morgan who are still alive today that also share really brilliant sort of insights to who he was as both a writer and a person. But anyway, the collection of love poems, I just think, are so deeply moving. And I would say, start with there but my favorite Morgan poem is By the Fire and I think it's just one of the most beautiful examples of a love poem and what's so to me interesting about it is it involves death and I think especially sort of longer term love when you kind of have to go through the highs and lows of life to me that is a really brilliant example of a relationship with someone that you've been with for a very long time and to have to help get them through the mourning process I think is just a brilliant example of what a love poem can be and that it doesn't have to be cheesy and flowery but also, it's just the language he uses is just so precise and it's so tight. And the couplet that he ends it with is just, to me, one of the best examples of poetry. The the last thing that I, I wanted to ask to kind of close out the interview for us is, would you read one of your favorite poems, maybe even By the Fire? Yes, I will read By the Fire because I just think it's absolutely stunning. So By the Fire by Edwin Morgan. That night, I was your father and mother I broke your solitude. I cradled something that you became. You cried my name. How wildly we had turned. I smoothed your brow where we lay in the glow. Kissed you so deep, so long. It was as if I had moved a key in the door of desolation. You were almost weeping, thinking of your dead brother, the apple of your eye. Crushed in that 
torn car metal, your dead sister, grotesque on the black ice, your mother in her grave, your years of waiting half-life, half-death, your diffidence, your fear. But I was then your brother and your sister in the dance of the fire with your head in my arms. I will take all the black ice of Lanarkshire from the heart that only needs love. What I give you, give me, and break me free. That is beautiful. Thank you so much. Wow. Oh, thank you for reading that. That was amazing. Thank you. Oh, and thank you, Morgan. Just thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your generous thoughts. Thank you for having me and thank you for your wonderful questions and just the opportunity to speak about a poet that just deeply moves me. And I hope that we'll, we'll continue to sort of speak loudly about after his centenary passes. That was a fantastic interview with Andres Nicolas Odorica. You can find his website at andresodorica.com. We'll pop that in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at andresnodorica. Again, we'll include that in the show notes. He's such a gem. I really realized how much I miss conversations with creative people. Yeah! <laughs> like, sort of that thing of bouncing off people's energy and ideas. And it's sort of, it's so invigorating. And just really nice to hear, like, some thoughts that were like nascent in my brain being articulated so well from him yes absolutely I thought it was really interesting because one of the things that I'm very aware of is Morgan's profile as a translator and the fact that he translated into Scots he translated um, the Russian futurist poet Mayakovsky into Scots which is not something I'm aware of really being done in the 60s and 70s of like Mm. elevating Scots as a literary language in that way not merely in writing in it and I think like both through his translation and the way that international poetry really influenced his work and then his connections with international poets Morgan really placed himself as a European and an international poet and so placed Scottish poetry as European Mm. and international and I think that's something that he really gave to the literary landscape in Scotland Carcanet in their collection of his translations talk about translation as a quote part of the necessary mechanism that Morgan as a Scot employs to define his place as a European to escape the tonal and cultural limitations which England can imply oh um but I really enjoyed hearing how the internationalism meant that Andres identified with mm. the work as someone who is a new Scot and has come to Scotland and is growing roots here. I thought that was really interesting, yeah, that's that great. aspect of a relationship mm. with work. For 2021, we're thrilled to be talking to you about Eddie Morgan, the man, the myth, the major poet in his own right. And we'd like to drop you in at the deep end with a live reading of his sound poem, The Loch Ness Monster's Song. As the name suggests, it's a fast-paced, hardline deep dive into the murky depths of ontological meaning. Buckle up. The Loch Ness Monster's Song. Snuffle? Snuffle? Dribble half a lapel, 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 full. Gum graf, graf, off gum graf. Hop a plodock, dop plodock, 
Plavadakot, the Plavadakosh, Sbugra, fuck, fuck, Sbugra, fuck, Grabber, Gabriel, fuck, Spiflock, Sgra, crack, caca, fuck, Graf, Graf, Gaff, Gumblumblebel, Blimplum, 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 Blip. Thank you. I am so happy right now. That is an important commentary on the Scottish literary landscape. And frankly, the four years I spent doing a PhD was worth it to be able to (laughs) fully express the depths involved in that poem. How many more C like metaphors and puns can we put in? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It may help to contextualize this poem with an overview of Morgan's work. As Andres pointed out, Morgan was a prolific poet and translator. His poetry shows this through a hugely, widely creative range of cultural and historical interests. So productive was Morgan as poet, dramatist, critic, broadcaster, reviewer, and librettist that his output supports three archives in Scotland alone. There are 13,000 of his books, many with his annotations in the Mitchell Library in Glasgow, which is where Andres did some of his research. In Edinburgh, there is the substantial Edwin Morgan archive of first editions, rare journals, pictures and ephemera in the Scottish Poetry Library, which opened in 2009. Morgan wrote in nonsense verse, as we have heard, in Scots, in English and in translation. He's partly known for his instamatic poems, which is the phrase that Morgan used for the work that he wrote as a snapshot, as if snapping an instant verbal picture of the scene. He's also known for concrete poetry, when the form of the words on the page itself creates an image or experiments with the meaning of the words it contains. The reason, one of the reasons that we're looking at Owen Morgan for free verse is the fact that he did not come out until his 70th birthday in 1990, despite a 15-year relationship with the man to whom he dedicated his 1982 collection, Poems of 30 Years. Given that homosexuality was not decriminalized in Scotland until 1980, Morgan was forced to be silent and invisible when dealing with the subject in his work. His poems, Strawberries and The Unspoken, are both examples of this. They both describe intense love, but both poems avoid referring to gender, though Morgan also noted that he kept the genders undisclosed as he wanted his love poetry to have a universal appeal. Morgan also served in World War II, having interrupted his studies to join the Royal Army Medical Corps, and it is in that context that his poem, The Unspoken, should be read. Annie? The Unspoken. When the troop ship was pitching round the Cape in 41, and there was a lull in the night uproar of seas and winds, and a sudden full moon swung huge out of the darkness like the world it is, And we all crowded into the wet deck, leaning on the rail, our arms on each other's shoulders, gazing at the savage outcrop of Great Africa. And Tommy Kosh started singing Mandalay, and we joined in our raucous chorus of the unforgettable song. And the dawn came up like thunder, like that moon, drawing the water out of our yearning, though we were going to war, and left us exalted. That was happiness. But it is not like that. When the television newscaster said, the second Sputnik was up, not empty, but with a small dog on board, a half-ton treasury of life orbiting a thousand miles above the thin television masts and mists of November, in clear space, heard, observed, the faint far heartbeat sending back its message, steady and delicate. And I was stirred by a deep confusion of feelings, 
got up, stood with my back to the wall and my palms pressed against it, my arms held wide as if I could spring from the earth, not loathe myself to go out that very day where Lyca had shown man, felt my cheeks burning with old Promethean warmth, rekindled, ready, covered my face with my hand, seeing only an animal strapped in a doomed capsule. But the future was still there, cool and whole like the moon, waiting to be taken, smiling, even as the dog's bones and the elaborate casket of aluminium glow white and fuse in the arc of re-entry, and I knew what I felt was history. Its thrilling brilliance came down. Came down. Comes down on us all, bringing pride and pity. But it is not like that. But Glasgow days and grey weathers, when the rain beat on the bus shelter and you leant slightly against me and the back of your hand touched my hand in the shadows, and nothing was said, when your hair grazed mine accidentally as we talked in a cafe, yet not quite accidentally, when I stole a glance at your face as we stood in a doorway and found I was afraid of what might happen if I should never see it again, when we met and met in spite of such differences in our lives, and did the common things that in our feeling became extraordinary, so that our first kiss was like the winter morning moon, and you shifted in my arms, it was the sea changing the shingle that changes it as if forever, but we are bound by nothing, but like smoke to mist or light in water we move and mix. Oh, then it was a story as old as war or man, and although we have not said it, we know it, and although we have not claimed it, we do it, and although we have not vowed it, we keep it, without a name, to the end. Hmm. This poem... (laughs) It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's that that sense of clandestine secretive private relationships it reminds me of something we said in our very very first episode so much of queer history is in the winks and nods you know a straight person reading this could easily have missed the cues for a queer reader although we have not claimed it we do it although we have not vowed it we keep it a queer person reading that can very easily understand that this is a story about somebody who who's not allowed to claim it, who is not allowed to vow themselves to somebody else. The necessary discretion in public, plausible deniability, stolen glances, like accidental, but not quite accidental. I think as well, the final line, without a name to the end, seems to directly reference Oscar Wilde and the love that dare not speak its name. At least that's what it sounded like to me immediately. It's just a really gorgeous acknowledgement of what it's like to be in that context. And even though like he writes it within this post-war sense of like, you know, experiencing what it was like to be in service and then come back and like still have these disconnects and not knowing how overt he can be and not knowing how private he should be. I just think it's fantastic that like something that was written you know, decades and decades ago still speaks so and and resonates so much for us as we're reading it now. Actually, in that vein, I wanted to talk about another poem. In 2001, Morgan collaborated with a Norwegian composer on a requiem in memory of those persecuted by the Nazi regime. And so the the result was is this three-part poem called the Trondheim Requiem, 
each part named after the triangle that Jewish and then traveling and then homosexual people were forced to wear in the camps to identify themselves. So the yellow triangle, the brown triangle, and then, then the pink triangle, respectively. I wasn't even fully aware of the fact that Morgan wrote what could be termed as, you know, political. I mean, that's a very, like, unhelpful word, but for lack of a better one, political poetry about queerness. And so as I was reading through his selected, I was really struck by this one because it seemed so tonally different from the other poems he was writing. But, you know, especially bringing into the theme past and present, we're talking about, you know, the unspoken as a, a poem from the past that still resonates. I wanted to look at this poem as a kind of parallel to that. So, the pink triangle, homosexuals. We were the lowest of the low, Further down, you could not go. Nature itself, they said, abhorred us. How should the Third Reich reward us? Flog them, scold them, bugger them, no one save or succor them. Kill the queers who sicken this land, so our extermination was planned. Friendship, oh, that sacred thing, feared a brief embrace might bring anger and denunciation, cattle trucks the fatal station. Branded clothes, electric fence, castration under the immense heaven of ignorant Europe. Hardest of times to live in hope. Day by day, we cheated death. Day by day, with one more breath, wrestled despair into the ground. Day by patient day, we found tricks of survival, those of us, lucky, determined, devious. Camps at last were liberated. Everyone must run elated. Homewards? No, not everyone. Gay men returning had to shun stories of those terrible years. Secrets and shames like unshed tears filled our hearts we could not speak. Let the salt drops on our cheek tell you at last and tell it true. We are no different from you. Help us to rest in peace. Make known dark times. Inscribe them on a stone. Gosh, that is really quite different from it's the work that I know of his. Really striking, especially because, I mean, I'll, I'll put some uh, trigger warnings in the show notes just in case. But what struck me more than those kind of explicit details of concentration camps was the fact that he talks about how everyone must run home elated. No, yeah. not everyone. The yeah. fact that like, okay, you're liberated from the camps. That doesn't mean you're liberated in real life. An important note that Morgan makes here is very much that freedom from persecution of the Nazis did not lead to freedom from persecution anywhere else. Morgan was intimately familiar with the limitations of prejudice, not just because of his sexuality, but also because of how conservative his home life had been growing up. As his literary executor, James McGonagall, wrote in The Scotsman, it was shocking to learn the depth of antipathy towards Catholics in his conservative Protestant childhood home. His father, a Freemason, declared that he would, quote, never knowingly employ a Catholic, unquote, in the firm's yards. John Scott, the love of Morgan's life, whom he met in the early 1960s, was a storeman who came from a large and easygoing Lancashire Catholic family. The poet, an only child, continued to live with his parents until the age of 42. His relationship with John Scott altered Morgan's poetry forever, and he came to write some of the finest love lyrics in the language. This 1960s emotional awakening ran alongside positive dealings with people from religious life. Morgan's attitude towards Catholicism, however, altered in the 1990s. He was dismayed equally by the revival of Orthodox Christianity after the collapse of communism, 
and by the attitude of the church towards homosexuality around the repeal of Section 28 by the Scottish Executive. Yet even in his last years, he was in regular contact with the Spanish Opus Dei Jesuit, discussing theology, philosophy, and Scottish culture. He was rarely predictable. That's the end of the quote from McGonagall. McGonagall also gives insight into Morgan's relationship with John Scott, who may have been the love of Morgan's life, but it was not an exclusive relationship. So, again quoting, I was surprised by what Morgan termed his own libertinism. In the dark subculture of gay 1950s Glasgow, and later, he sometimes lived what he called a life of risk. And his relationship with Scott ended in estrangement before his early death from cancer in 1978. He never really forgave himself for that. I know that 1950s is not the right period, but you're reading that and I'm just playing scenes from It's a Sin. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 30 years yeah. later, but yeah, it's. I think it's a similar subculture of, you know, cruising and picking people up and having very short-lived relationships and never feeling like you could commit to anybody. And yeah, I can completely understand that context, but I do, I do think there is some more historical background necessary in this story. Again, homosexuality was not decriminalized in Scotland until 1980 when Morgan turned 60 and he would take another 10 years to publicly come out of the closet, which I just think is such a remarkable, like 60. I cannot fathom having to be private about such an important part of yourself for your, like almost your entire adult life. But in an interview with The Herald, our current Scots macker, Jackie Kay, who was close friends with Eddie Morgan in the last years of his life, Kay says, I think he would have felt like a lot of people that it wasn't really anybody's business, but it was also a generational thing. It wasn't that long ago from his point of view that it was illegal and as a gay man you developed a whole way of being to try to avoid being arrested. I think these habits run deep and are hard to shake off even when you're able to, so it was partly society's fault and partly his own reticence, being quite a private person and thinking that he didn't need to share it until Clause 28 made him think he absolutely had to. That's the end of the, the K quote. We've briefly talked about Section 28 in an earlier episode. I imagine many stanza listeners will already be familiar and many free verse listeners will already be familiar. But to quickly recap, section 28 was the discriminatory law that forbade any perceived promotion of homosexuality by local authorities and by implication by schools and organizations with council funding. And it came into effect in 1988. So eight years after Scotland decriminalized homosexuality, um, it was a product of the ultra-conservative Thatcher government and the increasing homophobia surrounding the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Section 28 was essentially legalized censorship of any mention or inference of queerness, and it wasn't repealed in Scotland until 2000. And it was, Scotland was the first place to repeal, to repeal it. it. It was one of the first mm. acts of the Scottish government. In that same Herald interview, Jackie Kay spoke a little bit about the impact such cultural and institutionalized homophobia had on Edwin Morgan. She said, I think he got into the way of being secretive after years and years of being in the closet. I remember making a radio program with him once called Word on the Street, and I asked him about whether he missed the secrecy that being gay involved. And to my surprise, he said he did, because there was a great power to a secret. There was just the two of you that shared it, end quote. I think that's kind of a beautiful thing as well. Like, you know, as much as, you know, having to live this sort of secret life because legally and culturally it's not allowed. As much as that is a terrible thing to have to experience, there is this like one sliver of positivity and hope, which is that it cements a commitment. It really cements the idea that like this is something so personal and private to you that you are choosing to share with somebody else. That is a really nice way of looking at it. And I think especially, you know, Morgan was quite particular about stating 
that his early love poems were genderless, not just because he was in the closet, but because he wanted to have a universal appeal. And he felt that his poetry should not be limited to this sense of, you know, I'm writing about gays. I have to say, I hadn't really thought about the fact that he uses you and I until we were preparing for this episode. And then I had to remember there's a lovely bit in um, Ali Smith's Girl Meets Boy. Um, and Ali writes quite a bit using the first and the second person and again it wasn't something i'd really thought about and then that one of the characters has realized that her sister is gay or bi and is having having a little bit of a crisis and she remembers how at school her friends or like you know she and her classmates always said you could tell the gays because they preferred love songs that said you You. instead Ah. of she or he and it was kind of this little nod. And I think that was, I'm sure that's partly something that, you know, decades ago was even more of a thing, probably also more of a thing for people who realized while at school that they fancied people of the same gender. But I did, yeah, I rather love kind of seeing that seam of, again, it's the wink and the nod kind of thing, which I really like. Yeah, that issue of writing so openly about your sexuality, I think that's something we keep coming across in terms of like, poets and writers and historical figures having to balance between this is an important part of my identity but I don't want this to be the only thing that I am seen as I think that's something that's a constant like even now like as much as we are quote-unquote liberated I think that's still something that I sort of struggle with in a professional context where I'm like this is a very important part of like what I do and how I am but I would be very frustrated if that was what my output was reduced to so i think you know especially in the context of being criminalized it has this even greater sort of impact so that was just a, something that i didn't expect from morgan it was really sort of again sort of felt seen by so we wanted to finish with strawberries which andres mentioned as his first his first morgan poem and i think it was mine too and i just it was to mine too <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the first poem that most of us read coming to Eddie Morgan. But I did want to mention, we've uh, mentioned Jackie Kay, the current Scott Smacker, a fair bit. Mm, And she does have a lovely poem, which I will leave you to look up for yourself, but it's called Strawberry Meringue. And it starts, the time before the last time I saw you, my mum and I bought you a strawberry meringue. And it's for Eddie Morgan. And it's just lovely. And it's my favourite, my favourite Kay lines. We thought of words to rhyme with meringue. Did you say harangue? Am I right or a meringue? <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. So yeah, just another moment of um, of Morgan continuing to influence poets writing today. <laughs> anyway, strawberries. There were never strawberries like the ones we had that sultry afternoon. Sitting on the step of the open French window, facing each other, your knees held in mine, the blue plates in our laps. The strawberries glistening in the hot sunlight. We dipped them in sugar, looking at each other. Not hurrying the feast for one to come. The empty plates laid on the stone together with the two forks crossed. And I bent towards you, sweet in that air, in my arms. Abandoned like a child from your eager mouth. The taste strawberries in my memory. Lean back again, let me love you, let the sun beat on our forgetfulness. One hour of all the heat intense, the summer lightning on the Kilpatrick Hills. Let the storm wash the plates. 
Yeah. Love that poem. It's so romantic. It's so romantic. And it's kind of that, yeah, I don't know, like that intensity of feeling, um, but without being kitsch and without, yeah. It has this vividness about it that you just, as you're reading it, you're there. You're absolutely, mm. you're just there in the moment. There's also the sense of like coziness because he talks about the lightning on the hills. So like there's like storms happening elsewhere, but like not here. Yes. Like this is comfort. Oh, yes. Well, shall we finish off um, saying what we're reading now? Yes. So for our stanza listeners, we usually round off every free verse episode with a little what to read now recommendations from Annie and Aideen. The book that I'm reading, and I'm like 10 years late to the party, I know. <laughs> like, this is one of those books where like every single person, sorry, six years late to the party, I just checked. Um, every single person I know when this book came out was like, it's amazing, you have to read it. It didn't, like, when uh, the initial sort of excitement ended, I still kept hearing about it. Like, it was, it's just been a consistent, you have to read this book. Um, so the book that I'm finally reading, very unfashionably late, is The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson came out in 2015. Nelson is a poet, a critic, nonfiction author, and teaches in CalArts in Los Angeles. And The Argonauts is this, it's such a, as something, you know, as any book that is inherently creative and organic, it is very difficult to describe unless you're just reading it. It's technically in the genre of memoir, but it doesn't read as a memoir, <laughs> as intensely personal as it is. I'll give you the wee blurb, and then I'll, I'll give you how I've been getting on with it. A timely and genre-bending memoir that offers fresh and fierce reflections on motherhood, desire, identity, and feminism. At the center of the Argonauts is the love story between Maggie Nelson and the artist Harry Dodge, who is fluidly gendered. As Nelson undergoes the transformations of pregnancy, she explores the challenges and complexities of mothering and queer family making. Written in the tradition of public intellectuals like Susan Sontag, Nelson uses arresting prose even as she questions the limits of language. The Argonauts is an intrepid voyage out to the frontiers of love, language, and family. Which I do think is a pretty good indication of it. But as you're reading through it, there's something that reads incredibly personal about this book because she's dealing with such intensely private subjects, but the way that she talks about it is so articulate and almost academic, but not in a stuffy way, but in a sense where she's referring to these big ideas that she's, you know, teaching and researching and she's embedding them into her life and trying to like have them as a tool to understand these complex feelings that she has and these complex situations that she's working through as a mother, a partner, someone who's creating a new family. The way that she does that, it, it doesn't feel like an essay. I think if most people a approach it's it, it's much in more this creative. Way, it's so wonderful. And there's just so many fabulous references in it where she's talking, you know, like I think about 10 pages in, she talks about Judith Butler and gender trouble and performativity as she's talking about her, her own gender self consciousness. And immediately she starts talking about motherhood as part of that. And it's just this fabulous personal reflection on this period in her life where she's kind of working through these really huge steps and you know as someone who is approaching 30 and having many major life crises this is speaking to me on a level that I wasn't expecting <laughs> but like it also it also makes me feel very held because she's taking on these like huge issues and personal kind of decisions and sharing them so openly and in such beautifully articulate ways that I just felt like I'm, you know, I'm not finished reading it yet. I think I'm sort of rationing it because I don't, I don't really want it to end. 
it's one of those ones it may it's very exhilarating but you also are kind of like you want to tread so carefully reading it oh, i'm so glad you're you're finally coming finally to the party. <laughs> i mean i thought i was late to that party but, um, so i am reading a much more recent book actually i've just finished how we are translated by jessica gaitan johannesson you know should confess to conflict of interest jess is also a friend of mine um, although we actually met, I, I edited her work, um, which was how we first encountered each other. And I'm very excited that her debut novel is just out. Ooh. And it is really good. It does, like, she is a writer who makes you work. Like, it is occasionally a l- little bit weird, uh, but it's great. Um, Jess is swedish Colombian, lived in the UK for the last, I don't know how many years. And the book is about a Swedish woman living in Edinburgh. And in the book, Edinburgh Castle has been turned into the National Museum of Immigration, which has like living exhibits from a number of the communities who have immigrated to Scotland, but noticeably mainly the white communities. Um, And the, um, yeah, so Kristen, the narrator, works as like one of the, she works as a Norse person in the Norse exhibit. I mean, it's partly genuinely a really thoughtful reflection on language and identity and living between cultures, but it's also a really hilariously beautiful, like just really spot on expose of like the bullshitness of management. And <laughs> so like, yeah, her, her colleagues are, she's Swedish and then there's a, I think it's a Norwegian and an Icelandic person. And they're not allowed to talk English while they're working. So they have to talk their own languages to each other. And of course, actually, like Swedish and Icelandic are not the same language. (laughs) And equally, they're not allowed, like if a manager comes to speak to them, they have to get a translator during working hours, even though they all speak English perfectly fine. Because so and it, oh, it's just even though it's made up, I had to keep reminding myself of the fact that it, that it was fictional because mm. I was like, this could totally exist. I would, <laughs> and it was yeah, also quite a good expose of of the fact that I mean, as we kind of touched on earlier, like Scotland likes to claim people for its own, but only the right people. So to you know, like it does sort of pick apart that um and Kristen's boyfriend has is, is Scottish has been he was adopted by Scottish parents as a child but he was originally from Brazil and so it's actually him who always gets the oh where are you from questions um so that also plays into things so yeah I I can highly recommend it there are some absolutely hilarious moments and um it's just something a little bit different so that's my new favorite read at the moment fantastic Oh, that does sound really great. What was the what was the name of it again? Um, How We Are Translated by Jessica Gaitan Johannesson. She switched her surnames around. I'm sure it used to be Johannesson Gaitan, and I'm now like, I have to stop and think every time. It used to <laughs> run off my tongue so easily. Oh, fantastic. Well, I think that is our special episode on Edwin Morgan. It is. So tune in next time for some Audrey Lord. Yes which we are very excited about. Yes, we'll have uh, our guest speaker, Jess Bruff, who has agreed to come on. So we'll probably be recording that in May, I think. So that is the plan. Wonderful. Yes. Looking forward to it. Yes. Okay. Okay, Well, thank you. Yes, uh, thank you. And remember, the first Pride was a riot. 
There is no liberation without trans liberation. Queer history is history. 